Hey friends, and welcome to the last episode of season four of The Volume Knob. The songs that saved your life. This week, Julie and Color and Light. Hey friends, welcome to the end of this season of TVK, and I know it's a cliche to say that I've left the best for last, but I am really, really proud to be presenting you the work of this week's storyteller. My name is Julie Polk, and I love my mother. (laughs) And the song that saved my life is Color and Light from Sunday in the Park with George. Julie's story really hit home for me when I was mixing it this week because it's about complicated family relationships. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes back, my work this season has been punctuated by the death of my own father in February. And because my dad and I didn't really get along. Any story I would tell you about my dad would be inherently vague and kind of hard to believe He told my brother and I that he was born to a young girl impregnated by an older married man and given away to a foster home on a farm outside of Fraserburgh, Scotland. We were told that our family name is an anglicization of that married man's name, which is Sari, S-A-R-I, which itself is either Farsi or Persian or, quote, you know, Jewish from Turkey, end quote. It's kind of unclear. We do know that dad was one of a dozen or so children fostered by the Skinners on that farm north of Aberdeen, and we do know that the Skinners were cruel. Dad and his foster siblings were forced to do hard physical labor on the farm, and when they flagged, and even if they didn't, the Skinners would hurt them physically and psychologically, and my dad never really recovered. He left home At a young age, to join the Salvation Army and eventually the Merchant Navy, he worked on container ships sailing the world, but never learned to swim. My dad met my mom at a shore leave dance in Halifax, Nova Scotia in the late 1960s. And my mom, who was herself a fantastic storyteller and who predeceased my dad by nearly 30 years, told a crazy, clattering, fanciful story about the only time she met her mother-in-law, my grandmother, on that side. She somehow had found my mom and dad and had arrived in their house in Canada from Spain, kind of like a hurricane, all demands and extravagant dreams. I'm told that my grandmother loved my mom's cooking so much that she decided that the best plan for their collective future was for the three of them to leave Canada immediately for the Canary Islands, where they would run a restaurant together. If my dad inherited anything from his mother, it was this impetuousness. He was constantly flitting from one solution to the other, a single scheme that would bring him, and by consequence all of us, out of poverty and out of shame. For a while, my mom bought in. She and my dad moved 
flitting around chasing the next big thing. They moved together without kids from Halifax to Red Lake, Ontario, so my dad could work in a mine. And then they moved together with me from Red Lake to Labrador City to run a failing general store. And then they moved apart. My dad moved to BC and my mom moved back home to raise me at my grandmother's place in North Sydney, Nova Scotia. But not long after they split, my mom realized that she was pregnant with my brother and that she and dad decided to give it another go in Kitimat in northern BC, which was another mill town with another set of schemes. Dad spent a lot of my teen years convinced that the national lottery, we call it the Lotto 649 in Canada, he was convinced it was rigged. He was convinced a lot of things were rigged. The live draw of the 649 was broadcast during the evening news every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, and he'd yell things like, Can't you see? They rotate the drums so that they can keep the balls they want hanging in the air. Long after my dad left the stable job at the aluminum mill that he'd moved to Kitimat for, to a failing real estate office, and then to a failing photography business, and then to a failing distributorship for Olivetti Personal Computers. Long after all of that, he would spend his evenings on the phone trying to convince the folks he knew, both wealthy and not, that he had a system to beat the lottery. It involved picking the corners. He had handmade diagrams in marker that looked like games of battleship. My dad would run a punchline campaign for mayor every election season. He smoked a pack or two a day, but blamed the fumes from the mill for his lung problems. He was that guy. He died being that guy. Picking fights with nurses and doctors and raging at circumstance. As a middle-aged man with children of my own, I've known for some time that a role model doesn't have to be entirely positive. You can, of course, become a better person by emulating the people you admire, but you can also improve yourself by surgically picking the small pieces of other folks around you while working hard to be the opposite of the larger broken parts of them. In this bipolar way, my dad taught me to love music. He taught me that laughing loud and hard is okay, even though it might not always be socially appropriate. He taught me the value of patience and stability and empathy and selflessness. He taught me to save my money and that buying fancy things doesn't make you important. Dad taught me to go to therapy. My dad and I didn't really get along, but there are many, many things I owe him in addition to my mere existence, and I'm grateful for all of them. I loved him in my way, and I sincerely hope he rests in peace. Anyway, I say all of this not to steal the thunder from Julie's story, which frankly, I don't think I could. It is that good. But hopefully to say goodbye to season four of the show in a way that explains where my head has been at. And in hopes of coming back to you in season five, hopefully later in the summer, maybe in the early fall, if you're really curious, sign up for the newsletter on the website to find out more detail and to come back to you with new perspective myself and new energy and hopefully 
a lot of new stories that you love as much as I love gathering them for you. So with all of that said, here's my new storytelling hero, Julie Polk. I'm 17 years old and I'm sitting in a theater with my mom on, appropriately, a Sunday afternoon. And about a third of the way into the first act, there's a duet called Color and Light that's sung by George and Dot, who is his model and his mistress. And he's singing about the obsession that it takes to make art and how painful he knows it is for her, but how he needs her to understand that this compulsion is what it takes for him to be who he is. And she's singing about how he promised to take her to the Follies. And as she watches him work, she knows that, once again, it's not going to happen. And I'm stunned watching this, because what I'm watching on stage is my parents. My father was an architect. His office was on the third floor of our house. He made all his models and drawings by hand. So I grew up in a design studio. And my mother loved theater. She had been a local child actor. Her parents had taken her to old school 1940s style supper clubs where people got all dressed up and there was nightclub style entertainment and it was glamorous and exciting and she was like nine and she loved it. So I got my love of theater from her. And the other thing that makes it so specifically about my life is that George and Dot are not singing this duet to each other, but each of them directly out to the audience. And what they are really singing about is how their relationship is fracturing because she loves him as much as she does and he loves her as much as he can. To explain to you why this is the song that saved me, I actually have to go even further back to when I was six years old and my mother is giving me a bath and she turns to me and she says, what happened to my soap? And it was just a bar of orange Neutrogena soap, which I didn't know at the time. What I knew was that it wasn't to be used by us kids, but now it had these big purple blotches on it and I hadn't touched it. So I told her I didn't know, but she was in this rage and she didn't believe me and she kept asking me what happened and I kept saying I didn't know. And finally, to make her stop, I told her that the purple had come from our sofa downstairs and she knew that that was a lie. And she hauled me off to bed. And about an hour later, she puts my older brother to bed, and his room is next to mine. And I hear him say that he had gotten purple ink on his hands at school that day. And because her soap was special, he thought it would take it off. And she thanked him for being so honest. And it, it's not that I wanted him to be punished. It's that my mother never said anything to me afterwards. It was like her explosion had never happened. And those explosions were repeated throughout my childhood, especially as I became a teenager and we fought more naturally anyway. When I was about 16, we got into a fight when I was standing at the top of a little short staircase in between in our house. And I had sprained my ankle in basketball practice. I was on crutches and she got into one of her rages and her hands sort of flew back 
and she pushed me down the stairs and I managed to grab the banister and land on my back and she could have done me serious injury. But that's not what was scariest. What was scariest was that these rages had taken her over so completely at this point that when she her hands flew back, there was no semblance of my mother that I could see in there. It wasn't that in that moment, my mother wanted to hurt me. It was like this thing that had a hold of her wanted me to never have existed in the first place. And my father, who had been upstairs in his office, lost in his architecture like George in his painting, came down and started yelling at her for what she had done. And this became the template. My mother and I would argue and then something would happen and this rage would just take her over. And my father would come down and yell at her for how she was reacting. And she would feel ganged up on because he was reacting to her violence and ignoring whatever it was that had started things. And nothing was ever said about it afterwards. It was like these things never happened. And the thing is, when these things weren't happening, my mom was amazing. She was smart and funny and charming. She played a wicked game of Trivial Pursuit. We have still never beaten her in Scrabble. When I got cast as Annie in our summer camp musical, she sent me a telegram saying that no orphan ever had a prouder family. Knock them dead. A telegram. Like, she just had this magical quality about her. Because that was true, and because these violent episodes were never discussed or acknowledged, you start to feel crazy. Like, how can this sparkly, warm, generous person also have done these terrible things? And you start to doubt your own sense of reality and to wonder if these things happened or if they did, because they obviously did. It was too hard to deny. But if they did, was it somehow your fault? And it is deeply, deeply disorienting. And then we got a little break from all this because when I was 16, my father got a chance to teach for a semester in California and my mother went with him and I stayed behind in Philadelphia because I had school stuff. And my mother loved being in California. She had lived there with her parents when she was 12 for a year. She wanted to stay even then. So when now she had to come back again with my father, she was just somehow angrier than ever. But we still had managed to have these connections through theater. And so we went that Sunday to see Sunday in the Park with George. And there are George and Dot singing about how their relationship is falling apart because George can live without Dot if he had to, but would probably die without being able to do his art. And while I don't know if it's exactly the same with my father, because my parents had an incredible love relationship, I think deep down that it is. 
and that my mother knows it. And while it doesn't excuse her rages and her violence, the fact that he's usually up at his drafting table when all hell is breaking loose below and then comes down too late and blames her for how she's treating me without ever acknowledging what it is that might have possibly legitimately made her angry in the first place is, I suspect, the reason why she is bawling as she hears them sing. And about a month after we went to see that show, I came down to breakfast before school and my parents were sitting at the table and my mother says, I'm leaving. I'm moving to California to start a new life. And then she says to me, I have tried to love you, but you have taken all of the love out of me and you are not to consider yourself my daughter anymore. And my father yells at her, and then he goes back up to his office, and I go to school, because that is how our family is. My parents never divorced. They were married happily, largely, tempestuously but happily for 42 years. But I did eventually graduate from high school and go to college. And once I got out of the house, I started going to therapists to try to figure out how I could get past what I had been left with from this chaos, which was among other things, this deeply rooted fear that I had somehow exaggerated all of this violence and, and fear that maybe all of those years of my mother acting as if nothing had happened was because somehow nothing had happened <laughs> or that those things had happened because of course they had because I was overly dramatic or too much to be around that I somehow by being me sucked the love out of people and therapists told me that that was a perfectly normal response to growing up in a household like mine. And that was such a huge relief. <laughs> and it also gave me a way into understanding my mother because her rages and denial didn't come out of nowhere. All throughout her own childhood and adolescence, while she was going to nightclubs and being a local child actor, her mother was doing the kinds of things to her that she had done to me. When my mother was nine, my grandmother took one of those heavy square cut glass ashtrays and hurled it at her head, which is a really easy way to maybe kill a nine-year-old. My grandmother told my mother that she was adopted, not to say we searched all over the world for you, our perfect chosen child, but to tell my mother that she wasn't a real member of her own family. My grandmother threw an ashtray at my mother's head. My mother pushed me down the stairs. My grandmother told my mother she was adopted. 
My mother told me I wasn't her daughter anymore. They're practically perfect hand-me-downs. They're also where my mother's denial of the things that she did to me came from, because if she faced the fact that she had done them, they would be proof in a way that she was, in fact, this terrible person that her mother told her she was. So I understood that. But knowing how the gun is fired doesn't stop the bullet. Even though she wasn't physically violent with me anymore, she could still be laceratingly mean. And because I was an adult now, it just meant that that drove us apart, which was painful for both of us because we also both really love each other. And so for years, I tried to convince my mother to go to a therapist so that we could get past all of this. basically asking that she dismantle her defense mechanism. But to her, that was her survival. And I didn't know how to stop needing her to do something that she couldn't do. but I couldn't repair our relationship alone. And every time she would tell me she couldn't do it, it would make me angry. And we would stop talking to each other sometimes for months at a time, once we didn't speak for nearly three years. And within just this past year, my mother and I were in another estrangement and it had gotten to be about five or six months. And it was really painful because my mom is older now and it becomes impossible to think about being estranged from her without wondering what it would be like if she dies while we are not speaking to each other. And the conclusion that I had to come to was that things had to be so bad for us to be in contact with each other that it would be worse than a scenario in which she died while we weren't. And I had kind of made peace with that. And in a weird way, that opened the door to let me get back in touch with her a little bit. It made me want to give it one last hurrah because it's still such a horrific idea to me that this would happen. And so I went to see her for Thanksgiving, just this past Thanksgiving, and we talked this through, and we both know how much we want to have this relationship. And it finally clicked for me very specifically why she wouldn't go to therapy. It was because she was afraid that if she went to a therapist, this trained mental health professional would turn to her and say, Actually, yeah, your mother was right. You are a psychotic alien freak show horrific nightmare. And sorry, that's just the way it is. I had kind of understood this vaguely the whole time because that's what I had been afraid of when I went to therapy. And my thought was always, well, I did it you can do it too. But I kept being confronted with this repeating evidence that she really wanted our relationship to work. And she was just terrified that therapy would break her completely.
And who am I to say that the only way that I can live with my mother is if my mother is the one who is in pieces? That it's not fair. So I had kind of gotten to this point where I was like, okay, I just need her to acknowledge in some way what she's done, to take some time and let me know that she's considered and understands on some level the pain that she caused, even if she can't apologize for it, just to acknowledge that she knew it was there. So there was a validation that it was real. And I asked her over Thanksgiving if she could do that, like not to say it then, but really to just reflect on it and without reflexively denying it. And then if she did that after a period of time, I would promise to be absolutely open to whatever it was she had to say. And she said she would think about it. And that was enough to keep us going. And I went back home over Christmas and we had a very nice visit. We didn't say anything about any of this. We just hung out and had fun and laughed at silly stuff. And as I was packing to go home, I went into my suitcase and there was a letter in there in an envelope. And she said, don't look at that until you leave. So I zipped up my suitcase, I go home, and it takes me like two days to open this letter because I am so scared. Because I know that what I'm gonna find is my mother saying in writing, I know what I did and we can't go back and you had to be in my shoes to fully understand what it was like. Because I know what it feels like to her that she is risking to do anything else. And I opened the letter and the first sentence said, Dear Julie, there is no room for doubt without question, without hesitation. If I could turn back the clock, I would. And I shut the letter and I cried for two days. That's as far as I got. <laughs> and I had emailed my mom before I opened this letter and I said, thank you for writing this. And I did that first because I wanted to make sure that I said that to her. But mostly I wanted to make sure that I couldn't go back and then say, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't enough. Because I had finally gotten to understand that accepting whatever she could give me as enough was my part of this. And a little further down, she wrote, there are so many points along the way where I need to ask for your forgiveness, but this puts the burden on you. And then she wrote, I recently read a quote that expresses how I feel. I'm sorry, I love you, thank you, please forgive me. Ho'oponopono prayer, phrases spoken in any order for reconciliation and forgiveness. And when she and I weren't talking throughout the years, I would talk with friends of mine who are estranged from one or more of their family members, and they'd always say it was okay, painful, but better. And I believe that. I am not against estrangement. I think that needs to happen sometimes. I just somehow couldn't do it. And I think why is somehow encapsulated in that moment when I was 17, sitting with my mother in that theater, listening to Dot in Sunday in the Park with George sing her side of the story. 
And he burns you with his eyes. Look at her looking. And you're studied like and what I expected in the end from that letter was my mother loving me as much as she could the way George loved Dot. And that was enough. But she gave me so much more. And I will never not be in awe of the raw courage that it took for her to do that. And grateful because, like I said, I'm Julie Polk and I love my mother. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a bi-monthly exploration of stories about the way music makes us feel. Many thanks to Julie Polk for her time and talent and vulnerability this week. If you go over to the show's website, that's www.volumenob.net, you'll see show notes on this episode, which will give you links to all sorts of information about Julie. And while you're on the website, be sure to sign up for the Volume Knob mailing list to receive our newsletter, which will be giving updates on season five of the show through the spring and into the summer. Finally, for the last time this season, many thanks to Kate for her 30-second review of Color and Light. So, was that right? Yeah, I did enjoy it. It also kind of gave me the idea of, um, in The Office, um, one of the characters, Andy, takes a part of, like, Sweeney Todd, I think it is, the musical, and they do a performance. And it gave me that, like, that, like, I don't know. That Broadway feeling. That, yeah, and then on top of that, they kept on talking about colors, which nobody cared about. It was way too long. And then on top of that, why was it that they kept on speaking? They were, like, they didn't, they weren't singing, they were speaking. A song is supposed to be singing. As always, the Volume Knob is produced by Sullivan Audio, and it is hosted, mixed, edited, written, and sound designed by me. My name is Keith Seary, and true story, in a previous life, I worked for the world-famous Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Though I never carried a gun myself... I was required to take a firearm safety course. Our instructor was very thorough and very blunt. Knowing how the gun is fired doesn't stop the bullet. I will see you at the beginning of season five with another story about the songs that saved your life.